You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 10th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And uh, we we have to uh, acknowledge the passing on this date of Alfred Bernhard Nobel on December 10th, uh, 1896. His real his real death or his uh, first fake death? <laughs> I guess it was his real death. Sorry. <laughs> of course, the famous Swedish chemist, inventor of dynamite and other things, helped create an industrial empire manufacturing, amassed a huge fortune, of which he left a fund to endow the annual prizes that bear his name, of course. And these prizes were first awarded in 1901, also on this date, I believe. Cool. Right. Aha. Wow. So he so felt nice. guilty about inventing dynamite. He did. Yeah. That's, That's the story. The story. And <laughs> we don't know how guilty, but... Well, we actually have a couple of scientists joining us this night to help us with the news items. Not by design, it just you know happened that way. I, I asked Phil Plate to join us for a couple of astronomy news items. He'll be on with us in just a moment. And Evan secured an Egyptologist to help talk to us about a news item regarding the age of the Sphinx. Is Egypt and- the only country with its own ologist? Is there a Spainologist or a Mexicoologist? <laughs> I think so. Probably. Really? That's a good question. A Greekologist yeah, a Greek, or Greek, Greek, Greekologist? Yeah. Maybe a oh, Romeologist? There's a lot of stuff in Rome. Daology. A, a Gaulology. I just made ology a verb. FYI. I'm sure there is. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, <laughs> substance That was an unsatisfactory answer to the question. <laughs> but well, I don't know if you guys read this or not, but the, you know, the, there are some... Egyptologists and archaeologists and other gaggle of folk who are claiming that, based on new information and new data and their own minds, that uh, the Sphinx, uh, the famous Sphinx of Egypt, uh, was actually uh, created several uh, a long time before it was actu- actually determined to have been created, and it bore the head of a lion that mm-hmm. was proportional with the rest of the body, and that was the original sculpture. And over the years, it got changed by the pharaohs of Egypt and so forth. So that's that's the news coming off of this article. And, uh, well, we tracked down an Egyptologist right here in the United States to uh, help shed some light on that. Very interesting bit because this is this actually is, um, for years there have been these pseudo-historians who have been claiming that the Sphinx, in fact, may even be thousands of years older than we thought and was created by some ancient, unknown, mysterious civilization. It's all a crock. But uh, what, was, what I found, it, you'll, you'll hear the interview in a moment, what I found interesting about Dr. Allen was that, you know, he's just a, a straight-up academic archaeologist. You know, the, he's an Egyptologist. And to him, this is just all annoying, this whole notion that they're, you know, these pseudo-historians who don't know what they're talking about are grabbing headlines by making these ridiculous claims that we know are wrong. I thought, you know, I'm always interested in just the attitude that your workaday academics and scientists have towards the sort of the more wacky ideas that get into the popular culture, because that's what we deal with more, you know, in the skeptical movement. You know, we're the ones who say, well, you know, we address the, the popular misconceptions that are being generated by 
dramatic pseudoscientists who, in fact, don't know what they're talking about. In fact, it almost seems as if there's an inverse relationship between how much you know what you're talking about and your ability to grab mainstream media attention. Why don't we go to that one first, The Age of the Sphinx, and then um, we'll be joined after that by Phil Plate. So let's go to that interview now. We are joined now by Dr. James P. Allen. Dr. Allen, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi. And Dr. Allen is a professor of Egyptology at Brown University and the president of the International Association of Egyptologists. And the reason that we have you on uh, the show this week is to discuss a news item which came out recently, I I believe yesterday, regarding the Sphinx. Uh, Have you had a chance to take a look, by the way, at this new report? Yeah, I have. So tell us, why don't you start by telling us what you think about it? Um, it joins a, a whole uh, raft of uninformed speculation about the Sphinx. For some reason, the Sphinx has always attra- uh, attracted attention, and not all of it is, is well-informed. And this is a good example. Right, and for for background, uh, the, the Sphinx, of course, is the famous artifact or ruin in Egypt near, in the, near the uh, pyramids of Giza that has the body of a lion and the head of a pharaoh. And the conventional wisdom, uh, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, the Sphinx was constructed shortly after the pyramids. Uh, it's uh, it's associated with the second pyramid uh, at Giza, built by the pharaoh Khafre. The uh, son and second successor of the pharaoh who built the Great Pyramid, Khufu, and it's about 2500 B.C. Okay, so about 4,500 years ago. Yeah. And how sure are we of that? What are, if you could briefly summarize for us, what is the evidence that leads us to that conclusion? Well, the, the dating is accurate to within about 30 years uh, that far back. As far as the association with the pyramid complex of Khafre, archaeological and architectural evidence uh, leaves no doubt about that. The Sphinx was carved out of the desert bedrock, and it was carved by removing stones from around it, or removing the, the stone from around it, and those stones were used to build the valley temple, that is the temple of, uh, that's in front of the Pyramid of Khafre and is connected with the Pyramid of Khafre by a causeway. So there's absolutely no doubt that it was carved at the time of the, the second pyramid, uh, Pyramid of Khafre was constructed. So there's like geological evidence to say that those rocks that used to, to, to build, is it, was it actually is it a smaller pyramid that you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, geologists have looked at this some 30 years ago now and identified the rocks, almost the building blocks, almost uh, to the point uh, at which they came out of the Sphinx uh, enclosure. Okay. Now, th- this news report deals with a geologist, Colin, I don't know if it's Reader or Redder, uh, who claims that erosion patterns suggest the Sphinx is older. Are you, are you familiar with that argument? I'm familiar with that argument, first uh, proposed actually by Robert Schock, uh, another geologist, who's actually cited in the article. And they claim that the erosion could only have been caused by rainwater. The erosion is uh, on the body of the sinks and not on the head. The sinks itself consists of three geological layers. 
The head is in a very hard uh, layer of stone, and it's the only remnant of that layer of stone that now exists uh, on the Giza Plateau. The stones of that layer were removed to build the pyramids. Uh, the body is in a very uh, soft layer of, of stone. Egyptologists call it tuffle, which is an Arabic word. And it consists of, it's like a layer cake. It consists of very thin, hard layers and, and very much wider, softer layers in between. And then the, the floor and part of the paws and lower body of the sphinx are again in, in a harder layer of stone. The soft layer of the body, which is the one that shows the erosion, and it's also the same layer uh, as the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, that stone is uh, extremely soft in, in the wide layers, uh, so soft that you can actually scrape the surface of it off with your fingernail. And windblown sand surely caused that erosion. Um, I've been in the Sphinx enclosure and seen it happen. I've seen flakes of stone uh, come off uh, as as the wind hit it. So he's misinterpreting sand or wind erosion with water erosion. That's his primary uh, flaw? Yes, exactly. And it's they, they had rain uh, at the time of Khufu. The wet period of Egypt's geology was ending, uh, going into the dry period, which we're still in today. Uh, but probably not enough to cause this erosion. And the erosion was certainly caused by the wind when the body of the sphinx was exposed. Doctor, another thing that this article uh, suggests is that the researchers discovered the sphinx's body and head were disproportionate, suggesting it was not originally a pharaoh. Is there any validity to, to that line of thinking? Well, the body is disproportionate to the head. There could be several reasons for that. One Egyptologist has suggested that the head was recarved uh, not from that of a line, but from a similar head uh, to what's there now to represent, because it was constructed by a different pharaoh, to represent the uh, Khafre. Um, that evidence is, is uh, it's just speculation, and it's, it's rather unlikely. Uh, it's possible that, that they planned a larger head. There's a, there's a fissure right behind the head of the Sphinx, and it's possible that uh, that fissure extended up to the harder layer, and it was simply impossible to keep a larger head on the body. It's also possible that the Sphinx, in fact, is not a lion, but a cat, which has um, a much smaller head in proportion to its body than a lion does, uh, much more like the Sphinx. And there's some evidence to suggest that. Um, we don't know what the Egyptians who built the Sphinx thought it was or intended it uh, to be. Later Egyptians viewed it as a manifestation of the sun god. One of the manifestations of the sun god is a cat. Uh, there's also uh, an inscription that's uh, on the valley temple right next to the sphinx which mentions the cat goddess. Uh, so it's possible that the sphinx originally represented a cat, the sun as a cat, but that's again uh, speculation much more informed than the idea that it was once uh, a lion with a much larger head. One other point I've seen raised uh, to argue against the standard story of, of the Sphinx is that uh, there is no documentation of the construction of the Sphinx and that that is unusual for the time. What do you, what do you say oh, about that? it's not that? unusual. It's true. There's no documentation. There's no documentation for the construction of the pyramids. One of the 
big mysteries is how the pyramids were built. But certainly they were built by the Egyptians. Certainly they were built uh, in the fourth dynasty, the, the pyramids uh, uh, on the plateau of Giza. Although we don't have the uh, written evidence, the architectural and archaeological evidence leaves no doubt. So that was not unusual for us not to have evidence or documentation of the of the actual construction. That's true. I just wish that uh, we had more informed speculation and that we didn't have to to spend our time refuting these uninformed hypotheses about the Sphinx or any other aspect of ancient Egyptian civilization. It's understandable because Egypt has fascinated people from the time of the ancient Greeks and still does. But people who uh, propose theories about the Sphinx or anything else have an obligation to uh, have the evidence at their disposal and to cite it, and that's not the case uh, in, in this case. Well, Dr. Allen, thank you very much for joining us and uh, helping clear this up for our listeners. Okay, let's do it. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Joining us now is the bad astronomer, Phil Plate. Phil, welcome back to the Skeptic's Guide. Hey, hey. Good to he be here, Phil. Bad. He ain't that bad. <laughs> now, we're doing a, a new kind of thing with, with you now, Phil. This is not like a formal interview. We're having you on to chat with us about some astronomy news items. Oh, good, because new things scare me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, make sure you're chattier this time. Okay. You're just so quiet on all the other interviews. And, and this is coming from Rebecca. All right, gotcha. Yeah. Uh-huh. I know, it's like pulling teeth. So there, there was several astronomy-based news items, actually, this week that we'd like to talk about. The first one is super cool. This one is about an ancient supernova that was first seen and recorded in 1572, and astronomers have come up with a method of getting a second look at this supernova. So tell us about that, Phil. Yeah, the concept behind this one is actually pretty simple. You have a star that blows up, and it gives off a big old blast of light. And that light expands outward in a sphere, and eventually that sphere intersects the Earth, and then we look and say, ooh, a supernova. But, you know, it's expanding in all directions, not just toward the Earth, and there's gas and dust and stuff, and that's surrounding the star itself. Now, the supernova explosion is only bright for a short period of time and fades away, and then it's gone forever. Ah, but... What happens is that expanding sphere of light keeps going, and it'll hit other things like dust and gas, and then those will reflect that light. And if that light is reflected toward us, then sometime later we see that gas and dust lighting up from the supernova light. And so it's it's a light echo. It's it's sort of the same thing as when you see somebody dribbling a basketball and you hear the, the sound reflecting off of a wall. So in this case, even though a supernova is kind of comes and goes really quickly, we get a second chance by seeing that light reflected off of other dust. So even though this blew up before anybody was using a telescope, now we can use our telescopes to see that pulse of light again and maybe be able to characterize it and figure out what kind of star blew up. So it's a second chance. How do we know that, that those flashes of light are actually coming from the supernova? Well, we're basically just making that up. Uh, I, mean, I knew uh, it! Uh, <laughs> didn't mean to say that out loud. Uh, well, you can't be absolutely 100% sure, except if you observe these, these little knots of gas and dust or whatever, and you can watch them get brighter and then fade away, 
the way a supernova gets bright is it tends to get bright very quickly over the course of just a few days and then fades in a characteristic pattern. It's, it's, uh, it looks a little bit like a bell curve that's lopsided. It rises quickly and fades uh, slowly. And if you see the little blob of gas doing the same sort of thing, you can be pretty sure. And the neat thing is, is that you can actually figure out where in space that gas is. Because by knowing when the supernova blew up and then when you see the light echo and then measuring the apparent distance between the two, you can actually sort of make a 3D map of the gas around the star that blew up as well. So yeah, that was kind of my question. We're, we're looking at gas and dust clouds that are the right distance away that if they had reflected the supernova, it, that reflected light should be getting to us about now. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. And and this method has actually been used in the past. I actually used it on my PhD thesis back in 90, when was that? 94? I can't even remember. It was so long ago. A supernova blew up in the middle of a ring of gas, like a donut of gas surrounding it. And there was a characteristic way that it lit up that gas. And I was able to figure out what, which side of the ring was, was closer to the Earth and which was on the other side of the supernova simply by examining how it got bright and how it faded away. It's actually wow. a relatively powerful method for getting a three-dimensional map of gas around a supernova. It's totally cool. Yeah, because if, if, the, if we're looking at the reflection off of a more distant gas cloud or dust cloud, that's, that's the, the backside, if you will, of the supernova as viewed from the Earth. Right, so we're kind of like looking at the other side of the supernova. That's correct. If there's gas between us and the supernova, it tends to get bright relatively quickly after the, after the star blew up. But if you wait sometime later, months, years, whatever, then that light is moving away from us, hits gas, and then that, that gas has to reflect the light toward us. So there's a longer distance it has to travel. And the longer distance it has to travel, the later it, it, it appears to light up. And that's how you can figure this stuff out. Now, Phil, can you also predict in the future where the light is going to be and know that there are objects out there that it hasn't hit yet that it's going to hit, make some calculations as to when precisely we should be seeing those reflections and kind of verify it in that, in that respect? I suppose, I'm thinking about that, if, there's a, if you take a picture of the area and you see this little blob of gas and say, gosh, this hasn't been hit yet, it must be on the other side of the supernova, you can kind of guess when the light echo will, will hit it but uh, you don't really know how far in the distance it is. You sort of know how far left or right of the supernova it is, if you want to think of it that way. But how far back it is, you don't really have any idea at all until you actually see it light up. You know, it seems like with the possibility of, of light echoes, I, like it never occurred to me before, but, I mean, with all the light out there and then all that light echoing... Doesn't it seem like the sky should just be ablaze all the time? Um, n- no, because there's not that much crap out there floating around to get lit up. And plus, the farther away it is from the supernova, the fainter it'll be. You know, th- this supernova was bright enough that uh, it, it, it was visible during the day. I mean, it was tremendously bright. And so the light that it gave off was a huge amount of light. But the light that is is reflected by the dust or the gas or whatever this junk is that's out there is much, much less because that stuff is pretty far away and then that light has to travel to us as well. And so it's really diluted by the time it gets here. You need a telescope to see that at all. And only the brightest events like a supernova can be viewed with this method, I would imagine. Is that right? Yeah, actually the first time this was used was in a nova in the constellation of Perseus and I, I want to say it was in 1913, but it might have been in the 1930s. I can't remember exactly. There's actually a paper where a guy studied this this nova. It was a star that didn't completely blow up. There was a vast explosion on it, but the star itself remained. And it, it lit up all the, all the stuff around it. 
And this guy wrote a paper about it, and I wound up citing that in my PhD thesis, which was kind of cool. You don't usually get to cite an 80-year-old paper or 70-year-old paper in your in your thesis. So that was actually a lot of fun. And the math behind it, if you're you know sort of a nerd like I am, the algebra behind it is relatively simple, but still surprising. You work out the math and. And the way this thing lights up stuff around it is it, it forms kind of funny shapes in the sky. And uh, it, it was really, I was really surprised. It was a lot of fun to just sit and play with this math. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this whole story, you know, it was very fascinating about the light echo, and that was really cool. But the other side of the coin for me was that this wasn't just some supernova. This was arguably the supernova. This was the supernova that Tycho Brahe uh, saw that act, that really was a milestone in, in science. Because before then, for like 2,000 years, People thought that the heavens were immutable, they didn't change, and that was that. But after he saw this supernova in 1572, it really set the stage for Kepler, Galileo, and Newton, and others uh, because of that. So it was really was a seminal event, not just a, you know an ordinary supernova. It happened you know at I mean? the right time. There had been other events. Uh, there had been other novae. You know, every few years, uh, there'll be some star which was previously unseen, and it'll, it, it's a variable star of some kind, a nova or something, that gets bright enough to actually see. And, and we know that these astronomers must have seen them. But if they were under the, the sway of Aristotle, who said that things didn't change, they may right. have ignored it or thought it was an atmospheric phenomenon or something like that. But at this point, uh, in, in the late 1500s, uh, things were starting to change, and so I think it, uh, this was just the right event at the right time. And there have been supernovae since then. There was one in the Andromeda Galaxy in 1885 that blew up, and that was the first one that had ever been detected outside of the Milky Way. And people thought it was a nova inside the Milky Way because they said, gee, if it were really you know, the Andromeda Galaxy at some zillions of miles away, this would be too titanic of an event to have actually occurred. And so, ironically, they they missed a great opportunity. And it wasn't until a long time later that we realized, oh no, this was the first extragalactic supernova ever really detected and studied. And then, 1987A was another star that blew up in a nearby galaxy that also revolutionized our understanding of how stars explode. Tycho Brahe described this in um, in his book uh, Stella Nova. Is that where the term nova comes from? In terms of, I mean, which means new, new star. But is that why we call these things novas because of his book? Do you know that offhand? Sure. That, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I don't know. Yes. Um, it, that's oh, okay. possible. But uh, if this were the first one that had been seen, then yeah, I guess that's probably true. But I, don't, I actually don't know. Tycho Brahe did invent the practice of always having an elk and a midget at all of your parties. Mm-hmm. True story. And he also had a gold nose. Don't forget that. Or I think it was actually... Yes. Uh, well, wasn't it, it lead or gold. pewter or something? I, I think it turned out to be an alloy, wasn't it? I don't, I don't know. But I always, you know, I but, um, it was your you know, lesson was, of Tycho is to always pee when you get the chance. Uh, that's yes. right. That's he died of a burst died from bladder, bladder sitting bladder. at the table. <laughs> Ouch. Well, well actually, that's, that's, never, that's never really been proven that he died of a, a bladder infection caused by oh. not peeing. That's the, you know. Yeah. Is that apocryphal? Nice, it's story. really, really hard to burst your bladder just from voluntarily not peeing. Your bladder yeah, just I suspect stretch. he had like syphilis or something. Because yeah. I mean, he was just the man. Ruining a perfectly good myth. Go ahead. There, Go ahead. there were a lot Sorry. of rumors about him <laughs> that he was quite the strange guy. So yeah, there's plenty of crazy stuff about Tycho Brahe that you don't need to make anything extra up. I mean, <laughs> his elk died when it got drunk and fell down the stairs. I mean, how many astronomers <laughs> can you say that about? Can you say that about you, Phil? I don't think so. 
One last bit about this news story <laughs> was that uh, we actually learned something about the type of supernova that occurred in 1572, right? Yeah, this was a straight-up Type 1A supernova, which is uh, kind of cool. It's it's the standard kind. Uh, it's a white dwarf, which is sort of the leftover core of a star like the sun after it dies. It's about the size of the Earth, but has about half the mass of the sun. So it's this incredibly dense ball. And it, it, if it's orbiting another star, a normal star, it can draw matter off, and that matter will pile up on the surface of the white dwarf and eventually explode in a thermonuclear blast. And it disrupts the whole star, and it, the, basically the whole thing just detonates. It's a tremendous explosion. But the cool thing about these is that you have to have the right amount of mass to blow up. And so no matter how this white dwarf starts, if it's low mass or high mass or whatever, they all tend to blow up when they have about the same kind of mass, which means that they all give off about the same amount of energy. And that's cool. That makes them a, what's called a standard candle. If they all give off the same amount of light, and you know how much light that is, then all you have to do is observe one of these things, and you can get the distance. The fainter it is, the farther away it is, and you can measure that. And that's what astronomers use to measure the distances of very distant galaxies. And in fact, that was the method that was used to understand that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. And that's how they found out about dark energy back in 1998. And that's going to win some folks a Nobel Prize someday. So finding right. out that uh, this was a Type 1a is cool because they don't happen that often in our galaxy. And if we can study one up close, that means we can learn a lot more about them, figure out how they do differ, because they do differ a little bit. Nothing's exactly the same. And that'll help us uh, calibrate them and get better distances to all these uh, really far away galaxies. It's very, very cool stuff. And just for background, the Type II supernova are just stars that are big enough on, to begin with to have a core collapse and to go supernova, right? Yeah, pretty much. It's actually their subdivisions, and it's a little more complicated than that. But the kind of supernova that most people think of, a giant star where the core collapses and then the rest of the star blows up, that's a, that's a Type II. Okay. Well, let's go on to the next news item. Uh, this one is actually... Uh, you and I had the same reaction when we were chatting about this before, Phil. This is kind of old news, but it is a uh, yeah, what's new, new confirmation of something that we already knew, and that is there's a huge, mongous black hole in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> I'm sorry, what were you talking about? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, this, this is funny because basically this is the difference between science and reporting about science. We have known there's a black hole in the center of the Milky Way for like 20 years or something insane like that. It's just been a long time we've known about it. And we've even known its mass roughly for at least uh, seven or eight years. We know it has about four million times the mass of the sun. It's been known because using uh, infrared telescopes, infrared light can pierce the, the dust that's just littering the center of our galaxy. So you use a telescope that can see in the infrared, and you can see that there are stars in the very center of the galaxy, and they're moving. You can actually, over the course of years, measure directly their movement. And this has been done by uh, Andrea Ghez and, and uh, Eric Beckwith and a few other astronomers, and by actually plotting the orbits of these stars and using another uh, old astronomer's notes, uh, Kepler, you can actually determine the mass of the object that they're orbiting. And the more stars you have and the longer you observe them, the better you can get the mass of the object. And that's how they figured out, look, we've got a, an object that has four million times the mass of the sun, and yet it's emitting no light. And we know it's not very big because these stars are orbiting it. You know, what's really small and incredibly massive, four million solar masses? Yeah, black hole. Right. So we've known this and we've known it fairly well. Now, this new study is better. 
they used uh, uh, better observations, they used more stars, and uh, they have a longer baseline, I think, of time. And so what they were able to do is really nail down the mass and get better error bars on it so that the calculation is basically more accurate. So what they have done is confirmed an old result and uh, been able to refine it somewhat. So this isn't really news. I mean, this is it's it's cool and it's important to scientists. But everybody, I mean, Dig and Fark and and uh, BBC and all these big websites are all saying there's a black hole in the center of the Milky Way, and it's like, well, yeah, we've known that for quite some time. So the reporting of this has been a little inaccurate as to its its you know how how well it pertains to the public. Yeah, no perspective, which is usually what you get. And what happened? Was there a press release? I mean, why did it flash like this? I don't know, actually. Um, I didn't get a... I don't think I got a press release about it. I might have. I'd have to go through my old mail. You know, it's it's possible. I get 10 or 12 press releases a day, and I would have seen this one and gone, well, yeah, duh, and and then skipped it. (laughs) Yeah, right. You can't write about everything, right? Yeah, and in fact, I think we talked with Pamela Gay in August about the fact that they... At that time, there was new observations that confirmed that it's in fact one black hole in the middle of the gal- in the, of the Milky Way, not oh, multiple yeah. black holes. Which I didn't even know that that was still even in contention. I don't know if you remember the specific you know, news item that we're t- that I'm talking about, but it was essentially confirming what was already the primary su- suspect that it's one single massive black hole in the in the center of the Milky Way. Well, that's interesting. Actually, I, I didn't know that that was a possibility for our galaxy. We do see multiple black holes in the centers of other galaxies, and that's because mm-hmm. those galaxies They're are collided. eating other galaxies. Mm-hmm. And the sort of the last stage of eating a galaxy is to is the, for the two black holes to, to merge. The Milky Way is eating several galaxies right now, but most of them are either totally dissolved or are still in the process of getting torn apart. So as far as I know, there's just one black hole in the center of our galaxy. Right, and that's what this confirmed. So again, it's like okay. yeah, confirming what we already knew and or was the leading contender. I have learned something from a medical doctor. Excellent. Right. Okay. Because normally uh, you guys have no clue what you're talking about. So That's true. I know we're close. Ooh, yeah. burn. This whole vaccination <laughs> thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Somebody's looking for a stabbing. <laughs> <laughs> there was one other news item that, again, is not like exactly new news, but it is a, a neat concept. And... Uh, Bob, you t- tell me tell me about this. This is one that you uh, sent me about the um, the Dyson spheres. Yeah, this was kind of news to me, and one of the coolest news items I came across. It was, it was so interesting. The uh, scientists are actually looking for Dyson spheres. I didn't know that they really took them that that seriously. Um, it, it didn't even matter to me what they found. I just thought it was. I just love the idea that they took it seriously and they're actually spending money on this. But uh, the idea basically is that it, that came from Freeman Dyson physicist Freeman Dyson in 1960, he wrote a paper and he speculated that um, technically advanced civilizations would have such a a high energy metabolism, as he put it, uh, that they might harvest as much energy from their parent star as possible by building these solar collectors around a significant portion of their parent star. And he wrote that if this was correct, then that we could then perhaps find these societies, these civilizations, by uh, looking for the infrared radiation that thermodynamics tells us would inevitably leak out of that shell. And that's exactly what the, the Fermilab Dyson Sphere Search Program is doing and, and has been doing. Uh, using the IRAS uh, data, the Infrared Astronomical Satellite, they've searched through the, the nearest 1,000 light years, and they located, using that data, they started with 10,000 sources. Now, by a source, the data is not actually uh, precise enough to determine whether, you know, is it one star, is it multiple stars, stars? so they, it's kind of like these 10,000 
vague sources of uh, of information, and they whittled them down to seventeen candidates. That might there might be something there, although I wouldn't don't get your hopes up because they can easily be explained away as clouds of hydrogen gas or even dust surrounding old stars. And these are just infrared sources, right? We're, yeah, we're talking about just sources of infrared light. The the images that, that the infrared images, if, as I understand it, are are pretty. What's the word I'm looking for? Like they're like just blurry. Low res. Kind of image. Yeah, low res. Right, so, they're low res, but now yeah. the Spitzer Space Telescope data might be available soon. That's, that's got resolution that's about 60 times the IRES resolution. Mm-hmm. And then I read that it might be available before the end of this year, 2008. Um, so they, we might actually have very soon data that's, that's much higher resolution that they could then look through and, and maybe, who knows, who knows what will happen then. But uh, the high-res data will definitely come in handy. Also, it was interesting that these 17 data points that they found are being added to SETI's list of interesting objects to investigate. So who knows um, what might happen when they, when they really start looking at these. The really interesting, though, aspect for me was just the whole Dyson Sphere concept and what it means and and is it possible and could a civilization do that might we do that one day try to harvest you know all that energy coming from the sun because it is you know we talk so much about solar energy these days talk about solar panels on steroids imagine orbiting solar panels around the sun such that it was like almost a a a sphere of these things the energy was just i actually looked up the energy emitted by the sun at 12 times 10 to the 34 joules per year which is Gargantuan, so it just it would make sense to me that this mega scale engineering would be possible for a say a type two civilization a civilization far beyond anything we we have now what's what's type two again that's like a Klingon or something a type two civilization is one that utilizes all of the energy of its so of a solar of a star or solar stellar right. system so it's a right. bit of a circular definition yeah. if you're type two then of course you would harvest the energy from your sun because that's what type 2 means. Now, the couple of cool things about this, too. Uh, one is trying to imagine what an extremely advanced extraterrestrial civilization might do and then using that as a method for looking for them. Of course, SETI itself, you know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, does that. We were assuming that a uh, we, you know, we're looking for advanced civilizations that would be beaming radio signals our way either direct, directed at us or just because they're beaming them in every direction. So that's an assumption we're making about that civilization. This is just another assumption uh, that we're making that perhaps they might build something akin to a Dyson Sphere and then we could exploit that uh, to, to see that they're there. And the second thing is that, um, as you say, my, the, t- the sense that I got, and Phil, I don't know if you have any more detailed information about this, is that using this method, first of all, it seems like you know, these infrared telescopes are are just you know doing infrared surveys of the sky. They're not dedicated to this project. It's just they're just analyzing this information for this purpose. But this infrared right. mapping is available to astronomers in general for whatever reason they want to use it for. But that this method would not be able to determine definitively that an infrared source is a Dyson sphere. It would just be a candidate, and then they would have to follow up with some kind of a standard SETI survey to confirm that it's actually a technological thing that we're looking at. Does anybody know if that's, if that's yeah, true? Yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that sounds, from what I've read, that makes sense, Steve, that this in, the information that they were looking at here, re, you re, they really couldn't get more, more information than, yeah, this is a very, very good candidate. And that's what they did, and they did it very well, but they really can't take it any further until it's vetted by some other means, I would guess. 
Right. The, the IRS satellite was actually launched in the early 1980s. And so it did a survey of the whole sky and several times, actually, different wavelengths of infrared light. Then that data, they were all archived. And so these guys went through the old data, basically, and just found a bunch of sources. So they found, you know, a gazillion infrared sources, and then they cross-correlated them with other surveys that were done and found that, I'm sure, most of these infrared sources were red giant stars, old evolved stars like the sun that give off a lot of infrared, or they were galaxies that are pouring out infrared, basically dust and shrouded objects, and they were able to eliminate most of these sources. And I guess what they're left with were 17 sources that they could definitively say were, were not stars, were not galaxies, were not anything that we know of, and, and these are the ones you, sh- you should follow up with. And I guess that's why they're going to observe them with Spitzer. But I don't know exactly uh, how, you, you know, if, if you point SETI at them and, and they're not broadcasting, all you can say is, oh, this is an infrared source and they're not trying to talk to us. But you still right. don't know if it's a gas cloud or what. You still need to, to investigate yeah. them further. And so I don't know exactly how they're going to do that. But it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool idea. It reminds me also of another thing that SETI came up with. I think we talked about this a few months ago. Looking in the plane of our solar system for signals because extraterrestrials who are occupying stellar systems that are in the plane of Earth's orbit around the sun would be able to see, detect the Earth or would have an easier time detecting the Earth because we would be eclipsing the sun. And therefore, they would know we were here, and those are the ones that may be broadcasting signals at us. And that's just a way of narrowing the, the candidates, narrowing the parts of the sky that we have to survey and right. just trying to uptick the probability that we're going to find something a little bit. So it's it's neat right. to those. I don't buy that, actually. <laughs> yeah, that right? doesn't sound right to me either. It's, it's a clever idea, the idea being that um, when we look for planets around other stars, if you have a really accurate detector and you see an Earth-like planet that passes directly in front of the star, you'll see the light in the star drop a little bit. And it's called the transit method. And you can do this pretty easily for Jupiter-sized stars, or Jupiter-sized planets, because the size of the planet... Uh, you can it means that it's uh, you get a one percent drop in the star's light, and that's actually you can measure that with a backyard telescope. But the Earth is a lot smaller, and so you need incredibly accurate telescopes to be able to do that. However, you can still do it. Um, but th- the thing is, that makes an assumption that is short-lived, in my opinion, and that is that y- you know in in. 10 years, if we really dedicated ourselves to it, we could be imaging Earth-like planets around other yeah. stars. It's yeah. just a matter, basically, of making a good enough telescope to do it. And if you have the, We know how to do it. It's hard, but we could do it. And so, between the time that we had electronic detectors in the early 1980s to the time we could build a telescope like this is maybe 30 or 40 years. So, this transit method only helps during that time. And then, after that, you can just detect Earth-like planets everywhere. It's kind of like the old idea of SETI that we might be able to detect planets because of their their leaked radio emission. But if you think about the Earth, how long were we leaking radio emission? Eventually, you know, we go to cable. Everything's going to be fiber optics and underground cable, and we won't be doing that anymore. The only radio emission we'll be we'll be blowing out is probably military radar and stuff like that. So there's a finite slice of time where these kind of methods work. So I don't think looking in the plane of the galaxy or the plane of the solar system is really going to make that much of a difference. It might, but you know, it's it's a clever idea, but I I don't think in practice it's going to make any difference. Yeah, that's a good point. And but it, it, of course, also 
this is all entirely speculative because we have one example of a technological civilization, and that's our own. And we basically have no idea what other technological civilizations would be like, except, you know, again, we're assuming that science is science and they would follow a similar path as uh, that we do just because they're investigating the same physical laws and physical universe. I hope you know, I live long enough to discover... <laughs> Uh, how good of a, of a of an assumption that is, you know, and when I think all of our assumptions about what extraterrestrials would be like or could be like are going to be shattered when we actually encounter one. That's, that's, that's probably true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But but you also got to think, you know, we have to start someplace. Yeah, and, absolutely. And if we assume that they're all, you know, hive mind plants that don't do anything, then we're never going to see them. So, you know, assume that they're they're going to use electronics like we do and, and look for them that way. And if we don't find them, then go to your next assumption. Even then, it's like, well, I don't I don't know how I feel about Dyson spheres. Um, a lot of people interpret it as actually a shell around a star, and that's not really what Dyson meant. He he kind of envisioned it as lots of little plates. Yeah. Orbiting yep. the star, each each intersecting it and, and absorbing the sunlight and making electricity or whatever you need from it, and you know you're assuming it's going to leak infrared. Maybe they have a material that is thermally perfect and doesn't leak infrared, and they can they you know they have a basically a, a superconductor, a thermal superconductor, and they can take all that energy and pipe it back into the star or under their planet or you know whatever to heat their greenhouses. I don't know. So you know there are a lot of assumptions you have to make, but you start at square one and say you know mm-hmm. let's let's obey the law of thermodynamics in this house and we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, it's looking where the light is good, not because yes. we think it's going to be there, but because the light is good there, right? And we, and we have no place else to look, so we might as well look there. Right. Well, Phil, thanks for joining us and helping us with our astronomy news items this week. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. <laughs> thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Well, it's always great to have Phil on. Certainly, yes, fun it to is. chat with. Definitely. You know, even though you know Bob and I like handling the astronomy news items, it's you just get that extra layer of detail when you have an actual astronomer on. Yeah, that's right. That's I believe nice. everything that Phil says. You do? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Jay, that it's funny kind you should of mention that. segues into our email. So let's go on to, uh, to an email <laughs> question this week. Um, this one comes from AVSA. Now, Rebecca, this was Twittered to you. This might, in fact, be our first Twitter question. Yes, and, you know, to prove that we are on the cutting edge, Steve, the word is tweeted. It was tweeted to me. Uh, whatever. Uh, tweeted, not tweeted. <laughs> Who came tweeted. up with that? Not me, so don't blame me. Stop complaining. You sound like, you know. Some bird lover, I'm sure. I'm going I'm to use, I'm going to say Twittered. Sorry. I'm going to say Twoted. Uh, oh. Start now, Rebecca. When 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 somebody uh, tweeted you, tweets you, tweets tweets yeah. you, right? Tweet. Does your computer go <laughs> yes. macaw? Does that make that noise? <laughs> macaw. No. Remember that thing you did last week? Macaw. You mean macaw? But, but <laughs> yeah, there it is. A tweeter <laughs> is anyway. That's a type of speaker. Twitter. It's at twitter dot com, and people can follow me if you want. Uh, it's twitter dot com slash Rebecca Watson. I think. But um, mm-hmm. I recently gained my 1,000th follower on Twitter, and I mentioned it to that person who became my 1,000th follower. And she asked if, as a reward, she could ask a question on the SGU. So I said that so long as it fit into the tiny Twitter box, which is like 160 characters, I think, then she could. So her question is... I'm sorry, Rebecca. I, you didn't check this with me first, so I'm going to have to what? disqualify this. Oh, go screw, Steve. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. You All know, right, you're, go ahead. If you're if more you're... in the loop. If you were cool like me, you'd be on Twitter and you would have seen this coming. So, okay, if I have here, to be cool, then oh, go shit. ahead. <laughs> so here is Avsa's question. She says, "I can't verify everything SGU covers. End up trusting most as fact. How doesn't it make us skeps? Just another true believer." Eek. So, in other words, why should she trust us? Right. Of course, our answer always is, well, you shouldn't trust us because we're just a bunch of people talking from our living rooms or dens or whatever. And we're distilling information from other sources that often are distilled from yet other sources that come from the actual scientists who know what they're talking about. It's a problem. We live in a very information-dense society, and it's very difficult to, to properly vet all of the information that you get exposed to. And probably most of the information we encounter day to day is wrong to some significant degree. You can base your assessment of sources on their reputation to some degree. You could base it on their, uh, their history. If you do check them out and when you check them out, they, they tend to be accurate, then that probably is a good indication of their, their overall track record. Um, you also should consider, does this source of information correct themselves when they make mistakes? Do they acknowledge mm -hmm. and correct mistakes? Very important. Yep. Yeah, we try to do that. Also, it should, you shouldn't put too much faith in any one source. I also find that I like to check things out, make sure that they're consistent among several sources. Although, you always have to be aware if they're actually independent sources or not. If it's just multiple um, sites or people or outlets relaying the same source of information, then that's not a way of independently verifying it. Yeah, I, I think that we should have a uh, disclaimer at the beginning of the show that says, don't trust a thing we say. Yeah. <laughs> I think it could improve, you know, our uh, reliability, um, ironically enough, as skeptics. I think that would give us more skeptic cred if we said don't believe us. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, be skeptical, even yeah. of us. Well, we, we do always, us. whenever it comes up, we do say that. I mean, we're not, we're not asking anybody to trust us. It's also partly why we try, you know, we, we have been talking for a while about making more of a consistent effort to do this, uh, to get on experts, even just to talk about one news item. The Egypt one that we did today, you know, there's so much detail in that subject and none of us have any idea what we're talking about. So, yeah, we could do the research and try to understand uh, what's going on. But it was just so much nice to have Dr. Allen on to say, to, to hone in on that one fact, like the stones yep. from the Sphinx were used to build the pyramids. Now, I may have come across that fact if I you know, did some background research for that piece, but that guy, his, he has such breadth and depth of knowledge on this topic that he just knew the piece of information that was most relevant to the, the issue that we were discussing. So... That, that's one approach, is just to try to go to definitive sources. One legitimacy to this type of question, I mean, it doesn't, you know, trusting us as a source of information doesn't make you a true believer. But I do think that as the skeptical community gets plugged in more and more, you know, we have blogs and podcasts and message boards. The, the, the concern that I might have is that the skeptical community becomes a so-called echo chamber where, you know, we're spending most of our time discussing ideas with other people who basically agree with us mm -hmm. and you know we can get cut off from the culture at large. I don't think that's happening, 
But that, yeah, I don't think that would happen a, just because, I mean, like we dedicate half our show to news being yeah. like brand new things popping up all the time. And I, I never see people kind of closing ranks on anything. In general, you know, everybody is mostly just really excited about correcting other people and, you know, keeping <laughs> everyone honest. Yeah, we've been accused of that before, that we're just parroting other folks in the skeptical community and so forth. Um, really? Yeah. I think yeah. we, we get some emails have a occasionally like voice. that. Yeah, but we're but bending, no, we're bending our, our skeptical abilities at news items, and, you know, we're obviously not doing all the research and all this reporting and everything, but, I mean, I think the right. good point that Steve brought up is, um, you know, we don't want to get caught in a feedback loop where, we're you know, we're just... You know, just talking to the same people about the same things and everything. I mean, we want to we want to increase the amount of people that you know have access to skepticism and logical thinking, and and that's part of the point to why we do the show. In my opinion, is that you know to not only to be on a journey on our own. You know, I want to become a better skeptic, but it's yeah. it's fun to help other people. It's fun to talk to other people and and move along that that the base knowledge that's you know required. To, yeah. to to be an analytical thinker, and I also think you know, as a community, we do reach out. I mean, I, I, a lot of people give a, send us emails where they say that they they do talk to friends and family and are reaching out to other people as they get better at their skepticism and their critical thinking. That it does move definitely. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things I like about the blogs is that you get a lot of readers and commenters on there that are not insiders in the skeptical community. You know, Even though sometimes they may be annoying and they may even rise to the level of trolls, I've tended to have a very high tolerance for that because I want to keep the conversation as open to people with other points of view as possible. You know, As you say, we don't want to just close ranks and just have people who, you know, who narrowly share our perspective you know, talking with us. Um, so it's important, I think, to keep that tolerance of you know, people with different views. And I also agree with you, Rebecca, that just old-fashioned skeptical one-upmanship you know, is at work often. People want to like, out-skeptic the skeptics. So even our loyal skeptical listeners, if they can find some way to criticize us, they will. And that's, that's actually a very healthy that's good. And, and good thing. I, w- yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. That's, how sci- that's how science works. We make fun of the pedants a lot, but we love them. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah but isn't do. that how science works? Also, I mean, it's it's yeah. the hard the hard critique and honest criticism of of the research that's going on to tr- to find the to poke the holes. With that uh, in mind, Evan, I thought I should take this time to tell you that you smell. <laughs> <laughs> really, he knows that. He knows that. <laughs> what, like lilacs Just or kidding, uh, like like rosemary. beautiful apples. <laughs> you, I like apples. Something much more profound than the show is that is the practice of science, and science is fueled by critique. That is like the number one thing I think in it, you know, the, that all skeptics have to deal with and realize. Right? That's our. That's like the yeah. rule of thumb for us. It's, it's not just mistakes. Right? That's easy. It's easier for us to say, yeah, we're we make mistakes and we're open to that. It's also just the overall approach to the whole skeptical thing. And what I find is that there actually is a fairly diverse range of opinions out there. We're not inbred, as it were, in terms of our skeptical approach. And I've always taken the approach that to be very open to other people's attitudes. For example, there are, there's a segment of the skeptical movement that's very libertarian in their approach to skepticism. There are others that are extremely liberal. There are those... Uh, atheistic, that, very atheistic. There are those that are very atheistic, other, other mm-hmm. ones that you know, don't even 
have any interest in dealing with religious issues. And also, in terms of how we should go about skeptical activism, there's a range of attitudes uh, ranging from those who think that we constantly have to be uh, framing our message to be as accessible and as as soft, if you will, as possible, while others think that we need to take pseudoscience head-on, take no prisoners. I mean, I've yeah. been writing a little bit about this issue on Neurologica and the Skeptic blog, and you get this range of attitudes like, no, we have to be all kind and soft to absolutely not. Let's, you know, Militant. ridicule the ridiculous. Let's take it on. And I don't, I don't think anyone knows what the objective right answer is. I think it's important for us to, you know, again, be open to this you know, variety of opinions. That's what makes mm-hmm. an intellectually vibrant group, you know, sort of allowing this difference of opinions. Healthy spectrum. Yeah. Well, Absa, thanks for your Twitter question, for tweeting that to Rebecca. That was absolutely <laughs> awesome. Thanks for quoting. Let's not make a habit of it, but I do like getting tweets from people. <laughs> I, but I can't promise that they'll all get onto the SGU. I admit to being a hopeless technophile, and yet I just I haven't wrapped my mind yeah. around the whole Twitter thing yet. This sort I, of I following either. somebody. It just seems like a lot. It just seems like extra energy that you have to. You guys, you know, to, you know, you guys stay on the cutting edge with your your anything you can attach to your waistband, <laughs> and I'll take care of the you know the blogs, the forums, things the, that the vibrate Twitter. in your purse. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter's not. <laughs> Whatever. Come on, Rebecca. Oh, yes, it is. You're a Twitter head. Twitter is awesome. Twitter I've met Facebook so many cool people through Twitter. <laughs> no, it's true. I give, met... give our listeners who may not know what it is the, the quickie on what that is. Actually. Okay, so yeah. what, what Twitter is, it's Elevator like a little micro blog. You can, um, you can post very short updates on how your day is going, and you can follow people that you like so you can get updates on what they're doing. So, for instance, I follow all the other skeptics, and we keep in touch like that. I follow Phil, and they all follow me, so we can directly message each other or just sort of keep tabs on what everybody's doing. And it's through Twitter that I uh, I met awesome people like John Hodgman, who uh, is super cool, and now my Twitter friend. Among wow. others, so how Does do people crime? get any work done? That's what I want. Yeah, well, that's just it. Where do you find the time? What's work? I don't understand. I'm a writer. That's what <laughs> I do. So I write into the Twitter box. And you got to be careful though, too, because I caught herpes on Twitter. So uh, did you? Yeah, you got to watch out for that. So what do you Twitter about? Like I'm on the can right now. I mean, is that the kind of? <laughs> yeah, you try. Yes. You know, Re- Rebecca tries to be witty and all that. You know. <laughs> What do you mean? I try History to be majors witty. and the unemployed. I try to be witty. What? Yeah, what I'm hey, talking about. If you're witty on Twitter, does that mean you're twitty? twitty. No, oh, oh, God. Well, that's done. not what it. Means. Oh no, no, you didn't. I am very witty. Oh, she's I'm, so I'm witty. witty Everybody, she is so witty. Uh-huh. Can you comment on someone's twat or wittiness? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> twat? Did you say? Oh my God. <laughs> That's inappropriate, Bob. Inappropriate. No, you did not. <laughs> oh, Bob. You don't. <laughs> Dive uh, head, head first into the shallow end. Well done. Steve, so, Steve yes, do you immediately go, comment. can I leave that in? Yes, that's exactly think, what I'm thinking right now. Is how am I going to leave that in? I think you can. Uh, uh, Please do. 
So, Rebecca, can uh, you twit for twat? <laughs> no. Oh, man. Oh, oh okay. man. So, yeah. I think. Well, let's move on with the rest of our podcast, shall we? Mm. All right. Excellent. And now, Randy speaks. Just yesterday, I introduced uh, Sean McCabe, my personal assistant here, to a gentleman who had walked in the front door and wanted to tell me the story of his psychic powers. Turns out this gentleman felt that he was a healer, and he was a well, an impressive gentleman with a, with a full head of hair and a beard, which I don't recognize as an appropriate combination, obviously. I took him into the library, and I sat him down with Sean, and I asked him to tell his story, and... Well, the fellow said, uh, I first uh, became convinced of psychic powers when I met this psychic who lives down in, in the Everglades here, and uh, he's a palmist. And he looked at my palm, uh, and Sean was just goggle-eyed when he heard this. Uh, he said, he looked at my palm, he looked up at me, and he said, when you were a teenager, you had uh, a serious fall. You fell 70 feet in a, in a grain silo. And he said, I was astonished at this. How could he possibly have known that that had happened to me and by examining my palm. And I said to him, uh, interrupting him at, at, at that moment, I said, well, he couldn't have told that by examining your palm. He said, well, he did. He didn't ask me any questions. He didn't know me. I hadn't made an appointment with him or anything. I just walked into into his little parlor down there in the Everglades, and, uh, and he, he did this reading for me, and he didn't know me. After the gentleman had left, I sat down. I made some notes while he was there, and I sat down with the notes, and I discussed it with Sean. Now, I don't know, but I strongly suspect that that fortune teller had not told this man what he told him as a result of examining his palm. I think we might all agree on that. But what did happen? This man has given this speech to audiences all over the world, the gentleman who visited us. He's a glass blower by trade, and he was at a conference in Japan where glass blowers uh, showed up and he showed his wares and whatnot. It was very well received, it seems. But what was even better received from him was the fact that he could heal. And he told everybody how he figured he could heal and how he discovered that he could heal. And it started out with the story that I just told you. So I said to Sean, how do you suppose this happened? And together we worked it out. And I think it's a pretty good scenario. I think that this man was approached by this so-called psychic who uh, looked at his palm, looked up at him and said, I see an injury here when you were very young. As a, as a teenager, you had an injury. And I think that the fellow said, yes, I, I had a serious fall in a silo, and uh, but I, I recovered very well. Yes, I, I saw that was a fall. I'm making up these conversations, of course, you understand. I thought that it was a fall, but, but you did survive it all right. But uh, you had, had a problem with some with some pains and stiffness for quite some time. Yes, that's very true. I did, yes. And this man is now telling the story because he wants it to be convincing when he tells his audience. And he automatically and innocently, that's important, innocently, naively, puts in the invention that the man simply looked at his palm and then looked up at him and said that at the age of 17, he took a 70-foot fall in a grain silo. And I think that the details were supplied by him because it's the art that we know as cold reading. It's, it's astonishing that a man is not lying 
And that's what Sean pointed out. He said, but he wasn't lying. No, he wasn't lying. He was not telling the truth, but he was not lying. That is not purposely deceiving someone for purposes of, uh, of deception alone. No, he was trying to tell the story as he believed that it happened. And I have no problem believing that this man really believed the story happened as he related it. This is an example, I think, of, um, of how these people can convince themselves of things that didn't happen simply because they allow themselves to invent, they allow themselves to hyperbolize, and the more they tell the story, the better it gets and the more definite it gets. There were other things that this man said that had us rolling our eyes at the same time, uh, not so that he could see, but uh, we understood that he was inventing things left and right in order to protect his position because, as I said to Sean afterwards, remember, Sean, these people don't just want this to be true. They need it to be true. And that is important, an important fact we should all remember. They don't just want it to be true. They need it to be true because it fulfills something within them, something that they want to grasp onto. I think that's a, a pretty good uh, analysis of what probably happened. Again, I will never know, and this man will never know, because his memories have been replaced. The original memories have been replaced by the story he has told these many, many, many times, over and over and over again. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week's items? I am yes. so ready. Here we go. Number one, scientists present research showing that sugar can be an addictive substance similar to cocaine or morphine. Item number two, geologists have discovered evidence for the existence of a previously unknown minor continent that previously existed between Southern Africa and South America. Item number three, for only the second time in history, the first being Neptune, astronomers have discovered a planet of the size and orbit where it was predicted one should be. What? Wow. What the hell? What was that last Two one? Two of those are true? That, that, oh my well, I don't think the last one was actually in English. This is, this is remarkable. Evan, go first. Ah, oh, hell. Sugar can be addictive substance similar to cocaine or morphine. We have a discussion recently. I don't think it was on the air, Steve. We talked about something having to do with either a, something about a sweet tooth or, well, um, so I'm a little sketchy on that one. Uh, but geologists discovering evidence of the existence of a previously unknown minor continent between South Africa and South America. Hello, Atlantis? Is that what we're... I'm sure that's what true believers will uh, claim. <clears throat> and then the third one about the astronomers discovering the planet, the size and orbit where it was predicted one should be for the second time in history. Yeah. And that one seems like I think the most plausible of these three. I'm having a hard time with this sugar one. I'm not sure how cocaine and morphine work as far as addictive substances in the brain. So sugar, why not? Why couldn't it? So therefore, I'm left holding the bag with this uh, unknown minor continent. I'm going to have to say that one's going to be fiction. Okay, Bob? All right, the sugar and uh, sugar being an addictive substance similar to cocaine and morphine, um, it depends what you mean by similar. I mean, similar in what way and to what degree. So based on that, 
ambiguity, I, I could buy it. The, uh, the third one's a little weird, Steve. Is there a typo here? Astronomers have discovered a planet of the size and orbit where it was predicted one should be. Yeah, so they said a planet of this sh- size should be in and this, this orbit. Right. Planet. Planet. Hmm. That's not dwarf, weird. Not dwarf planet. Crap. I'm not sure what to make of that one. Damn. Because the second one, I, th- I don't know, I think I spotted something about the second one that makes it an instant fiction for me. Um, strongly fiction. I, so many, uh, the third one, though, what the hell? <laughs> All right, I'm going to say that... <laughs> I'm going to go with three then. I'll say that two, the minor continent between South Africa and South America has to be fiction. Okay, Jay. That's what I said, Bob. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In case you weren't I got a real good reason. First one, scientists present research showing that sugar can be addictive substance similar to cocaine or morphine. I mean, obviously, like, the thing that pops into your head is somebody snorting it, you know what I mean, or whatever, but... I mean, like, I have i don't know. I've never known anyone to fiendishly be eating sugar, but that doesn't mean anything, actually. I mean, <laughs> sure, right? You mean addicted to sugar chemically in your brain? Like, that kind of dependence? That seems odd to me. Uh, the second one, geologists have discovered evidence for the ex- existence of a previously unknown minor continent. That's, that's really cool. I mean, I'm sure that that's possible. Uh, you'd figure that they would... With our technology today, though, that they would like have already, you know, they've already mapped the, that stuff out, and why would they only be finding it today? It seems to me like they would have already found evidence like that, unless it's really, you know, like minor. That's that's interesting too. This last one, I mean, what the hell is this? I I understand it, and it still doesn't make sense to me. So they predicted <laughs> where there was going to be a planet. They said, okay, a planet should be there, and they were right. And it's only the second time they've able they've been able to successfully predict this. <laughs> So I'm almost nowhere. I've, I'm I'm kind of stumped. Hell then. I'm going to say that the previously unknown continent seems the most unlikely to me. Yes. Okay, Rebecca? <laughs> okay, the sugar thing has got to be true because I, I feel like most people have experienced the the addictive powers of, of sugar and how you the more you have, the more you crave. And it's amazing, you know, if you can manage to give it up. The, your craving for sugar disappears. So, yeah. The idea of there being an unknown minor continent in between Southern Africa and South America is really odd because at what point would that would, would that continent have been there? Like, if you think about everything we know about Pangaea and the movement of the continents, like, did it, you know, was it underneath Pangaea and then come up for air and then sink down again? and I don't know what that's all about. So that just seems really baffling. And um, the last one is, I'm just as baffled as the other guys about that one as well, but the minor continent thing seems really fishy, so I'm going to go with that one as well. Woohoo! All right, so you guys are unanimous. So we'll start with item number one. Ah! Who's sugar? (laughs) (laughs) Scientists present research showing that sugar can be an addictive substance similar to to cocaine or morphine, and that is is science. That's crazy, though. Scientists at Princeton, looking at the effects of sugar in rats, uh, have found, uh, documented now, all of the behavior that is characteristic of addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is not just using sugar. You have to actually binge on sugar in order to get this effect. So they... What they do is they they allow rats to 
binge on sugar, and then they will withdraw the sugar from them. And the rats display behavior suggestive of craving. They also will have what's called relapse, meaning that if, if, you, if they get access to sugar again, they'll eat even more than they did previously, which is a typical behavior of addiction. They're, they will consume greater amounts of alcohol when they're withdrawing from sugar. They've essentially shown that all of the major features of addiction are present in rats. They also found that similar kinds of changes occur in the brain as with other types of substance addictions, such as cocaine and morphine. Ah, I was going to ask that. That that seems very unlikely yeah, to me. It doesn't mean that there's the same pharmacological effects you know, that you get with those drugs, but there there's the same dopamine system in the brain that basically mediates much of the, of the addictive behavior, and that there's the, the rats who binge on sugar get the same kind of dopamine changes in the same parts of the brain as people who become addicted to say, opiates or, or cocaine. So does this in any way lead to the idea that sugar might be bad for you? <laughs> Not necessarily. I mean, it doesn't say anything about the health effects of it. What it means is that binging on sugar can provoke the same kind of changes in the brain that exposure to you know, certain chemicals can. Could you be addicted to anything that you get exposed to in this pattern? Is this just a nonspecific you know, feedback system that can essentially produce this behavior to anything? Well, word to the wise, you can absolutely OD on pixie sticks. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I once made my tongue go completely numb from pixie sticks. I ate so many once with a couple of friends of mine that we were friven. We were freaking out. We were on an elevator, and I just remember like, it hit us at the same time. We were all just like, wah! So yeah, <laughs> pixie sticks. Uh, yeah. For those not in the know, Jay, describe what a pixie stick is. Oh yeah. Only Nazis don't know what pixie sticks are. It's like a paper straw that's filled with flavored sugar, like that's grape it. or orange. That's it. And you like you rip the end off and you like tip it up and you pour the whole thing in your mouth and you do that whole bit. It's great. And they also awesome. make they they make giant pixie sticks out of plastic straws that are amazing. Yeah, wow. and, that, and those are like two to three feet long, yep. and like you could literally kill yourself with one of those. <laughs> so, in retrospect, this one particular item was a lot easier for you guys than maybe I had thought. Yeah, your personal experience gave you junkie. a little bit of a leg up on that one. Well, all right. Well, let's go to number three. For only the second time in history, the first being Neptune, astronomers have discovered a planet of the size and orbit where it was predicted one should be, and that is. Science. science. That is science. Yeah. So you, it Yay. must be exoplanets you're talking it's about, It's an Steve. exoplanet. Gotta yes, be it's not in our own solar system. No, it's, it's, it's between us and Mars, right? Right, no. that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I figured you guys would, would sort that out, but that was uh, the bit I left out to make it just a, t- right, what's, a tad What's an exoplanet? A planet well, around another star, not, around our, not in our own solar system. Let's get Phil on to confirm that. Well, uh, <laughs> I thought that was implied. I'm I mean, so I, sick of that guy. No, I mean, the, the, it would have been... It was not implied. It was I, I left it ambiguously. Uh, certainly, I would think you know we would have heard if another planet was discovered in our own solar system. <laughs> Damn straight, yeah, Steve. I mean, we would even if it was in the exact opposite orbit of a of our planet. Say, like I'll just paint a crazy scenario. We would have been able to detect the gravity of that right. just by the way everything else orbits. Yeah. So there's no chance that we wouldn't have known about another well, it would, planet. It would have to have been system. way out. I mean, it would have to have been like, yeah. very very far out, like past the orbit of. Pluto or something. That's why, I mean, Bob, initially you were like, you sure you're not talking about a dwarf planet or something? Because, you know, finding a dwarf planet out, 
you know, in, in the Cooper Belt is no big deal. That's something right. that, that we're, we're, I'm sure we're going to find more out there. They, they predict that this one's bigger than anything we found yet. Yeah, in terms of dwarf planets. But why have we only found two? Like, if we have a system to predict these types of things, that's what was odd to me. Why? Why is this the only the second time in in the history? I think it of depends the on the inter, the interactions with other nearby objects. If there's nothing mm-hmm. nearby, then it's harder to predict. Oh, and that's how they predict it. Well, in this particular case, this is uh, astronomer Alice Quillen of the University of Rochester predicted that a planet would lie uh, in the within the dust of a nearby star. And recently that a planet of the size and orbit that she predicted was discovered and photographed by the Hubble Space Telescope. Cool. They should name it after her. <laughs> I yes, they should. Uh, and they say it's the only planet seen after an accurate prediction since the discovery of Neptune more than 160 years ago. Cool. Planet yeah, Alice. Cool. Mm. cool. Good work. To the moon, Alice. Which means that... Geologists have discovered evidence for the existence of a previously unknown minor continent that previously existed between Southern Africa and South America is entirely fiction. Steve, you know what made that easy? What? The shape of Africa and South America. Yeah, right. Exactly. That, if you, if yeah, you they knew nestle that, in together you, so nicely. That made it very implausible. You, you would have to suspect that it was something that moved in and, I don't know, that through plate tectonics was... Well, yeah, that's what I said. Something. something that like appeared after they split or something. Yeah. Um, or technically, I mean, there was a slight amount of room like on both of their southern tips. Yeah. Like there's Antarctica's right there, but then it could have nestled in right then. But so I mean, I, I wanted this one to be you know pretty implausible, but just to see if you would think that it maybe it, it could be possible. We've beaten you at your own game. Yeah, the more novella. you think about it, the more un- implausible it gets. Right. But this, I did. Uh, this I was inspired by a real news item to write this one. This again, this was another news item that I thought would make would have made a good real one. This one is a, a team of uh, geologists from Purdue University found the first direct observation of a continent actually splitting apart through plate the movement of plates through plate tectonics. Wow. Cool. Hmm. Yeah, what would you guys have thought if I threw that one at you? I would have thought Dude. you were crazy. That's crazy. I thought you were man. high on crazy sugar, man. man. <laughs> <laughs> Lay off the smack. So this is in Africa. There's the I guess uh, the the uh, eastern ridge in Africa which is a known, you know, connection or or line between two tectonic plates that are moving apart. Essentially what they found is what's called a diking event, D-Y-K-I-N-G. Shut oh, up, Jay. Jay. What happens is the, the two plates pull apart a little bit, and then they, they fill with magma. Jay. Magma. And that weakens the lithosphere, the crust. So here's the, the, the dilemma was that the forces generated by the movement of, pl- of, the t- of the plates, of the crust, the tectonic plates, was not sufficient to break a continent apart. That left us without an explanation for how that could happen. We knew it happened in the past. So what they think is that over millions of years, there's multiple of what they call these diking events where you have a slight pulling apart, which then fills with magma, and that causes a weakening of the lithosphere when it happens over and over again. It eventually gets to the point where it's weak enough that the, the movement of the plates is sufficient to overcome it and, and the continents can move apart. So cool. in millions of years, Africa is going to split you know, along this, uh, this eastern ridge. Neat. I see it. And this is the, so they, this is something where scientists said this should be happening. 
And, but this is the first time they observed it to confirm their predictions. Oh, cool. That's very cool. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. This is a quote sent in uh, by a friend of the show, Fernanda. Hey, Fernanda. Fernanda. Hey. Hi, Fernanda. Mwah, Fernanda. And th- this is a quote by Dr. Thomas Fuller, who was an MD, 1654 to 1734, was a British physician, preacher, and considered an intellectual at the time. And the quote is, get the facts or the facts will get you. And when you get them, get them right or they'll get you wrong. Dr. Thomas Fuller. <laughs> yeah, facts are kind of important. Mm-hmm. Just a little. Facts are stubborn things. Yeah, facts are stupid things. <laughs> They're pesky. <laughs> Who said that again? <laughs> Reagan. You just did. Oh, did Reagan meant to say facts are stubborn things, but he said facts are stupid, stupid things. things. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> You can edit that uh, out, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Evan. Well, yeah, that was good. That was, like, eerie good. Thank you. Speaking of none of that, do you know who listens to our podcast? Do you know we have famous people that listen to our podcast? Joe Bag of Donuts? Oh, uh... Uh, no. <laughs> Wink Martindale? <laughs> yes, actually, Bob Wink Hope? Martindale does listen. Jimmy Carter's grandson. Jimmy yeah, Carter's yeah, yeah. grandson does. Tom Cruise listens. <laughs> John Ronson listens, uh, and I'm a huge fan of John Ronson. I've brought him up many times. His book, Them, Adventures with Extremists and the Men Who Stare at Goats. <laughs> Fantastic. And it, so, yeah, I found out he listens. And also, awesome. the guy who started Ro- RoboCop on a Unicorn, he listens wow. to the show. Cool. Thanks, guy who started RoboCop on a Unicorn. <laughs> Awesome! <laughs> don't That's don't great. act like you don't know Robocop on a unicorn. Do you have a name for the guy? <laughs> I don't know his name. <laughs> <laughs> that's just persona. <laughs> that's that's not what's yeah. important. Steve. Guess who what's used to important? listen to this podcast? Who <laughs> <laughs> so used to listen to our podcast? How many famous people can we insult? Yeah. <laughs> you know who else? You know what other famous person listens to our podcast? Who? Dean oh. Cameron. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. And I'm bringing him up because he asked me to pimp something that he's doing, so I'll do it now. Do it right now. He is doing the Nigerian spam scam scam at the oh, Steve yeah. Allen Hairpiece Theater at the Center <laughs> for Inquiry West on Sunday, December 14th at 7 p.m. Uh, so if you're anywhere near the Center for Inquiry West, you can check into it. Tickets are $10. Parking is free. And I think the website is www.steveallentheater.com slash spam scam scam. Oh, if I were there, I'd be there. I'd be there in a heartbeat if I could make that. Yeah, that should be fun. It, a lot it's, of fun. It's, it's Olaf Rockney. Yeah. Olaf Rockney. Okay, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> non sequitur. Hi, Olaf. Hi, Olaf. <laughs> I love Thank guys you for named Olaf. Top on a unicorn. One quick notice about last week's podcast. If you downloaded it before 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, the day it went up, you got the out-of-sync version. There was a glitch in the post-production. But the uh, fixed version went up rather quickly. So if your version of last week's podcast seems out-of-sync, then uh, delete it and download it again because it has been fixed. We just got an email from another new skeptics group starting up in Norfolk, Virginia, and if anybody is in the area interested in hanging out with them, go to the link on our notes page because their web address is stupid. <laughs> <It's> crazy. <laughs> <long>. <laughs> I have a I have a feel like you know it looks like it's it's from the schools. Um, 
web, it is. web address need, and then and it has a tilde to to in it. GoDaddy or something. A tiny URL sign or something. in it or something. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining me this week, guys. Sure. It's good you. being joined to you. Thank you, Dr. Novella. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problem.